you for the ministry of Choice One. Lord, uh, I think this year is the 40th anniversary of serving our community and just doing a good and important work, Lord, in a place where people are, in some cases, desperate and in need. And Lord, we know that's where the gospel enters in because we only benefit from the gospel when we are desperate and in need, when we've come to the end of ourselves and there's a crying out for a help that is beyond ourselves. And Lord, as we uh, gather here this morning, we uh, open up the word of God. That's where every one of us in this room needs to be or is, but certainly what we all need to be. And so, Lord, I pray that even in our hearts right now that you would sort of flip that switch, Lord, from self-reliance to a reliance upon you, Lord, from our own human wisdom to the wisdom that comes from above, Lord, just from sort of going our own direction and doing our own thing to looking to the eternal one to guide and direct our steps. So bless your word today in a unique and really special, powerful way we ask in your name. Amen. Well, we are in the fifth chapter of the book of Zechariah. So if you have a Bible, turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there's some that are available in some of the seats nearby. Uh, I want you to see these things. We're, we've been looking at uh, the visions that the prophet Zechariah received. We're talking about roughly the year 500 B.C., and it seems like in one evening, he had a series of visions, eight total visions, uh, that he received. And all of them were designed to communicate a message to him through a picture that he would then communicate with the nation of Israel. Eight visions, as I mentioned to you. All with the same purpose, essentially. To encourage, the, encourage a discouraged people because of the various things that were going on in the nation. Now, we've looked at five of those eight visions. They are this. We saw the four horsemen, you remember that, standing among the myrtle trees. Learned what a myrtle tree was. I had no idea, although I have some in my backyard. I had no idea. Uh, we, learned, we saw the vision of the four horns that was suddenly and completely destroyed by the four blacksmiths or craftsmen. We saw the vision of a man, we think it was Zerubbabel, out measuring the city of Jerusalem. We saw Joshua the high priest standing in filthy garments in the presence of God and having those garments changed by Jesus. And then last week we spent some time looking at that golden lampstand and how that represented the nation of Israel and how it was to be a light to the world and how perpetually it was fed with the oil that came from the two olive trees that were beside it. And we spent our time considering each of them and what they meant and it's sort of a message that is building as the Lord is sort of... Uh, compounding this message that he's going to give through Zechariah to these people. And each one of those visions meant something in particular, and, and it was important. You can go back, you can look at it um, here. But the general idea, remember, is this, that the nation uh, that was discouraged, that had their eyes on the temporal, they needed to get their eyes off the temporal and onto the eternal. They needed to be reminded of what God was going to do in that nation through that people to the rest of the world. And, it, and all of the messages so far were designed to be uplifting and positive. We like that, right? 
positive and encouraging. You hear that on the radio, positive and encouraging messages from Zechariah uh, is what we've had. Today, however, it shifts gears a little bit. And today's message, or the tone of the next three visions, it changes a bit. And it goes from this, hey man, everything's going to be all right, just keep running your race, to a message of conviction, a message to be challenged. And this isn't my idea. I'm not, I'm not sitting around thinking, you know what, people need a good challenge next week. This is just the passage that we're on here, where the tone changes uh, a little bit. And frankly, we need to be challenged from time to time, don't we? I think you know, this guy wants to be. Uh, we do. There are, I think we kind of, we can settle in and we can be restored and we can be refreshed. And then like, you good? Uh-huh. All right, great. Now let's talk about this next area that we need to see some refining done in. And that's good. It's God stretching us. It's God growing us. Otherwise, I think we can grow a little bit complacent. And so as we come now to these next three visions, they are going to address a very important need in the nation of Israel. So again, the first five visions were designed to encourage that you are to be my people and you will be my people and you will be a light to the world drawing the Gentile nations to me. That's a very encouraging message. As we come now to message six, seven, and eight, it's now if you're going to be that light, we need to talk about some areas of sin that are in your life. Because there are some areas of sin that are in your life that are keeping you from being the light that I, that I would have you to be. And so we'll begin today in chapter 5, verse 1. This is vision number 6. It says, Now again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width 10 cubits. And then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. So we open up with a flying scroll. A scroll, uh, you all, do we all know what a scroll is? And I'd explain a scroll. So no books back then, scrolls that were kind of piece of paper rolled up with the, the words written on it. This one is a huge scroll. Notice 20 cubits by 10 cubits. Everyone know what a cubit is? It's okay if you don't. A cubit's about uh, 18 inches. All right, so a 20 by 10 uh, scroll is actually 30 feet by 15 feet. 30 feet by 15 feet. That's huge. That's about like this front section right up here. And this is a big book of sorts, or scroll of sorts, 20 cubits by 10 cubits, 30 feet by 15 feet. Now, I don't know if it means anything, but it's interesting. That's the exact measurement of the, the portico that led into Solomon's temple. I'm not sure if that's significant, but hey, 20 by uh, 10, uh, 30 uh, seems to be saying something there. Perhaps it does. Anyway, we have this huge scroll. It's also unusual because, as you see, it is a flying scroll. Now, remember, this is a vision. This isn't something that actually went down or actually occurred. It's a vision. And in the vision is this scroll flying through the air, a huge scroll that is flying through the air. We learn here that it has a message that is written on the scroll. And that message is going to go out 
over the entire land, okay? Sorry, I got distracted. Verse 3, it says, Then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. And so when we talk about this scroll that is going out over the land, again, it's, it's, that's the vision, but it's not literally that one day there's going to be this big piece of paper that is flying over land. The idea is that its message is going to go out, and everyone's going to hear it. Everyone's going to know it. Everyone's going to be able to see it, so to speak, and read it for themselves. Specifically, the message that we saw in the passage there uh, is this idea here of a judgment that is being spoken. So again, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. It is a pronouncement of the curse. Now, that's pointing to the Old Testament law. Old Testament law, you can summarize it, if you will, in Deuteronomy chapter 26 to Deuteronomy chapter 28. You do these things, I'll bless you. You don't do these things, or conversely, you do these other things, there will be a curse. That's how the Old Testament law works. Blessings and cursings that are going out. Here, as we see this scroll that is going out, it's going to pronounce a curse upon the sin of the land. Again, remember, Israel was to be a lampstand. They were to be a light. They were to draw people. They were, as Jesus used the expression, a city upon a hill. And in order for them to be that, then sin must be rooted out of the land. The same thing is true for you and I. If we are going to be the city on a hill or the light that's set up on top of the basket or that lampstand that's designed to show bright, if we are going to be as Jesus intended for his church to be, well, then the reality is sin needs to be rooted out of our lives as well. And I'm not talking about we need to be perfect because we're not going to be perfect. But what specifically I'm referring to is this, the sin of hypocrisy, is where we're one thing in one place and we're something else in another. Or we say one thing here, but we're doing another thing there. Or we say, look, forget about what I do, just listen to what I say. That's hypocrisy. And there's very few things that turn people off more to the gospel than the hypocrisy of those that proclaim the gospel. And so sin needs to be rooted out. Now, scholars differ with what exactly was on this scroll. We know it has to do with this curse here. And so there's some that think it, it lists the Old Testament law, specifically the Ten Commandments. We see that it, it's written on both sides. Perhaps that's the case. We know that the Ten Commandments were kind of divided up into two tablets. There were the first four commandments, were, which are essentially sins against God. And then there are the next six commandments that are essentially they're all, all sins against God, but also sins against man. And so some have suggested on one side is, are those laws that are against God, the other those against man. Others have suggested it is a record of the sins of the nation of Israel that is there going out over all the land, and now judgment's going to come about that. Some have said it's a written indictment. This is going to be the penalty. So we don't really know. Scholars differ as to what's written, and one thing we do know is it doesn't tell us clearly what is written out on these scrolls. But what we do see are two specific sins are mentioned. Look at verse 3. It says, For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side of the document, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. Now, 
I have to imagine Israel had far more sins than stealing and swearing falsely. They were probably involved in a whole bunch of other sins. And so these would be then representative of the sins of the people. Theft, being a sin against your fellow man, swearing falsely, swear to God, and then doing something else, being a sin against God himself. And all such sins will, and all such sins must, be rooted out of their lives uh, in preparation for that day when they will be that golden lampstand. It's worded in the verse, it says it needs to be cleaned out. So then this flying scroll is the curse upon evil. Now remember, this whole book, every one of these little visions, it ends with that millennial kingdom. Remember? Where, God, where Jesus Christ himself will rule and he will reign in righteousness from the city of Jerusalem. And for that day to come, then sin must be first rooted out. And this flying scroll, it speaks of that. Sin will be discovered. Sin will be rooted out. And it'll either be done so by you and I, as we pick up our word, and God begins to minister to us, and we begin to apply it to our lives, and sin begins to get rooted out of our lives, or it will be done as a form of judgment in that day. We have before us the option, if you will. And so those are sobering words, certainly, but it's one more encouragement for us to bring our lives under the word of God. As God ministers to our lives, as he speaks into our lives, as we feel the conviction of the spirit about a certain area of our lives, we can either respond to that or we can ignore it. It's as we respond to it that God does that changing work. It's as we respond to it that God allows us to be that light to others that draws others to ourselves. Again, what primarily keeps people from coming to Christ? For many, well, sin, certainly. But for many, it's the hypocrisy of those that name the name of Christ. It needs to be rooted out. Now, the passage continues. We have a seventh vision. This starts in verse 5. It says, Then the angel who talked with me, he came forward and he said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? And he said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, and this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket, and he thrust down the leaden weight on top of the basket, on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. And then I said to the angel, where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Now, this is part of the reason why I wanted everyone to have a Bible to read this, because this is unusual, isn't it? It's a little unique, like, what the heck is going on here? And if you weren't looking at it there, you'd think, like, what is he talking, where'd he go? How's he coming up with this stuff? It's right there, all right? And so a basket, a big one, a woman inside of the basket, a lead cover, that's unusual, on like a wicker basket, and then two other women coming and taking the basket and flying it to this land of Shinar where it would be set up on a base. Let's talk about this one a little bit. Or do you have it? Are you good? Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll try and talk about it a little bit. So this is an additional vision. All right, so he was looking at this flying scroll, and I don't know if he looks down, he's thinking about it. What is this one about? 
And these guys said, look up, there's another one coming. Oh, not another one. And now there's another one, there's a basket there in front of them. I love Zechariah. If I don't understand, I don't care if people think I'm dumb. Okay, what's this one? All right, he says, what is it? And then the man, the angel there that's speaking to him said, it's the basket that is going out. Hmm, wonder what that could be. Well, look, it is their iniquity in all of the land. So is it the woman in the basket? Is it the basket itself? I don't think it really matters. The woman inside of this basket, the whole thing is called wickedness. And so this is the sins of the people. We're told they're put in a basket. Usually our baskets are small. This particular basket, as some versions will tell you, is the ephah. We have some pictures here give you an idea of an ephah. It's the second largest measurement. Uh, usually grain and things like that would go in that basket. Uh, in this vision, a woman was able to go in there. Um, so anyway, it's a large basket. Don't think of some small little basket that you might have. It's a big one here. Unusual, it has a leaden cover or lead cover on top of it. And also unusual, it has a woman inside of it. Verse 8 tells us this is wickedness. So the woman inside of this basket personifies wickedness. Verse 6 told us it's the iniquity of the land, in all the land. And we're talking about the land of Israel. Now, in the previous vision, sin was cleaned out of each home. Remember that? It was rooted out, uh, was the term that I used, or was cleaned out of each home. It's as if, here now, this vision uh, number seven, it's going to pick up on vision number six. It's as if people went inside their homes, took all of this wickedness, dirt, or whatever it might be, threw it out in front of their homes, and now then this basket comes by, picks up all that wickedness, drops it in the basket, and takes it away to a foreign land. You see how the two kind of build on, one builds on the other? The place that it's going to bring it to, verse 11 tells us, is the land of Shinar. Now, Shinar is another name for the land of Babylon, or specifically the city of Babylon. And remember, this is a post-exile book. When the Jewish people had been taken off into custody for 70 years in a foreign land, they were taken to Babylon. And so here now, this basket and their wickedness is going to be returned to, if you will, to the city of Babylon. That it should not be too surprising to us. As if those of us, and hopefully all of us, students of eschatology or last days types of things, one of the things that we discover in the last days is a rebuilt city of Babylon. Now, some people, they disagree or differ on is that a literal city or is it a spiritual city? Babylon, from the beginning, has been the place of rebellion against God. You remember the Tower of Babel, where they were told to disperse on the earth? They said, no, we like it here. We're going to build a tower up into the heavens, and we're going to stay right here. And, and God said, no, you're going to disperse. I'm going to give you all different languages. You're not going to know what's going on. You're going to take off in different corners until you find people that speak your language. And he forced a, a dispersal. It's always been that place of rebellion Babylon has been. And so, again, there are people that differ as to whether we're talking in the last days of a literal Babylon or a spiritual Babylon. I lean more toward, personally, a literal Babylon that will become the headquarters of the commerce and the idolatry of the Antichrist world government that he will establish. And I come to that based on some of my understanding of the book of Revelation. And so, in the time of the end, in preparation for the glorious kingdom of, God, of Christ's millennial reign, this spirit of wickedness will be removed from Judah and carried off to Babylon, where 
uh, it will, where there will be a place that was prepared for it. Again, the ephah, it was the largest unit or one of the largest units of commercial measurement. And this woman in this basket with a leaden cover on top of it is a representative of wickedness. Again, it's one of the largest units of commercial measurement. And I think it serves as an image of the removing of greed and materialism and dishonesty and all of those things that came back with the Jewish people from Babylon. So remember, when they went off to Babylon, one thing that God rooted out of the people was idolatry. But the people had an opportunity in Babylon to make lots of money. It's odd. They're in prison, if you will. They're in exile in a foreign land. But they had the opportunity to make lots of money. And one of the things we know from our study of history is when they came back from Babylon, they brought back with them a lot of materialism. Remember in the book of Haggai? It said, is it time for you to live in your paneled houses while the house of the Lord lies in ruin? Their paneled houses was like the top luxury they could. And remember, it even said in that passage there, the word that it used was not like this is your main home and so you want it to look nice. This was like their second or third home. And they were spending all this money on this. And so greed and materialism and dishonesty for profit, all those things were a part of it. And God's going to root that out of the nation in preparation for his glorious millennial reign that will come at the end of things. And this vision speaks to the rooting out of that sin. And so then, just as the flying scroll shows that evildoers will be judged, this one goes a step further, and that even the principle of wickedness will be removed from the land, or at least needs to be removed from the land, is the message Zechariah is sharing. He's not done. Chapter 6, vision number 8. He says, again, I lifted my eyes and I saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered, I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country, the white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth, and he said, go, patrol the earth. So they did, they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. This vision's a, a little bit more detailed. But it is in line with the previous two. So it is a continuation then of this rooting out of sin. Now we're told of two mountains made of bronze. Some of your versions might use the word brass instead. Same idea. We're told of two mountains that are made of bronze or brass. And we're told of four chariots that come out from between those two mountains. Verse 2 and verse 3 tells us the colors of each of those strong horses. And so... As we read there, we see there's a red horse, a black horse, a white horse, and a dappled horse. Some of your versions might say grizzled or spotted horse that is there as well. Now, essentially, those are the same exact colors of the four horsemen in Revelation 6. Have you ever heard the expression, the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Uh, apocalypse, the word means revelation. And so those are essentially the same colors that we have in Revelation chapter 6. And as is very clear in Revelation chapter 6, those horsemen in that chapter, they were emissaries of God's judgment. 
sent forth to pour out his judgment on the earth in that day. And if the usual scriptural symbolism holds true for the colors of these horses, then we're speaking of the same time, the emissaries of God's judgment here in the book of Zechariah as well. Red spoke of war, black spoke of death, white spoke of a victory, and then dappled or grizzled or spotted, it spoke of the pestilence which so often follows war. In addition to the colors, notice we have two other symbols of prophecy, brass or bronze. Brass or bronze, so often in prophecy, or almost always in prophecy, it speaks of judgment upon sin. And the idea of horses, maybe in our day we might say tanks or something like that, as far as strength is concerned, but the idea of horses in prophecy was a combination of a meaning of strength and also speed. And so this judgment then, uh, because of the brass, this judgment then that is going to go forth, it's going to be swift and it's going to be sudden. And so the vision then, it speaks of a strong and powerful and swift judgment that will come from heaven between those two mountains. Remember, that's where these chariots come riding through. Those two mountains are commonly believed to be two of the mountains of Jerusalem, Mount Zion and the Mount of Olives and the valley that is right between them and that these, uh, these strong horses, if you will, again, a vision, not the literal horse, I don't think, but these strong horses will be coming through. Notice, it tells us that they go... They, they go out to the four winds of heaven. Verse 5 says that. The angel answered, he said, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord. And so again, if we're talking about the comparison to Revelation chapter 6, the comparison to Revelation chapter 7, what is called the four winds here is said slightly differently in the Revelation passage. Let's read that, Revelation 7.1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, the east, with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God upon their foreheads. There's this similarity here, and you can read in greater uh, detail the book of Revelation, and I would encourage you to do so with regularity. But the, the point is, it's the pouring out of God's judgment, God's wrath on an unbelieving world in preparation for the establishment of his glorious kingdom. And so the context then of our Zechariah passage, it certainly seems to connect Zechariah chapter 6 with Revelation chapter 6, 7, and, and really all the way up to chapter 18 of the book. Different descriptions of the same set of events. So who are these horses that are sent to the four corners of the earth? Well, they represent God's agents to bring the Gentile world into subjection to God's Messiah. So there's three visions today. I'm not done, so don't start packing up. But there's three visions today designed to show the people that the Lord was with them, that he was moving among them by removing their sin and destroying that kind of that commercial system that had gotten a hold of their heart. And then that the entire world, there would be this purifying process to the whole world. 
All right, so one common message throughout. Now let's continue on in chapter 6 because uh, I wanted to get to this before we end today. Today. Now strictly speaking, this is not a vision. We're done visions. Yeah, amen. We had eight visions here in the book. We're done with them. This one, strictly speaking, is not a vision, but it is a symbolic action that takes place. So it's something that occurs meant to uh, be speaking of something else. And it's a continuation of each of those messages that has already been presented through the eight visions that we've already received. And so the remaining verses of chapter 6, what they're going to do is they're going to tell us about an event where Joshua the high priest, we've learned about him, where Joshua the high priest was crowned with a crown of silver and gold. Now that's significant. That's unusual. You should read that and you'll be like, that's weird, is your first thought with that. Because in the nation of Israel, the high priest was never crowned with a crown of gold or silver or any other kind of crown. The crown represents the king. In the nation of Israel, there was to be a strict separation between the religious leaders and the political leaders. And so there were kings, and they were anointed as such, and there were priests, and they were anointed as such. And yet here, in, our, in this um, symbolic action, we see the high priest being crowned with the crown of a king. And he's commanded by God to do so. So obviously God's in it, and he's okay with it. And that forces us, I wonder why. What's this about? Why? Why are we allowing this which was forbidden? So let's go on. Verse 9. It says this. Now the word of the Lord, it came to me. Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobiah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit on and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobiah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Again, not an actual vision, but an actual event at the culmination of all of these visions. And it's an event that looks forward to a much more important event, which is the crowning of a greater than this particular Joshua, the high priest. We have a symbolic action. But it's a symbolic action which is pointing to another, capital A, another person, who will one day be anointed both, both priest and king. And that language should be familiar to some of us. I'm talking about the Messiah. The one who was once rejected at Jerusalem and crucified on a cross just outside the city of Jerusalem, a day is coming when he will be seated upon a, a throne and he will rule and he will reign from Jerusalem. Again, that day is the millennial kingdom, that thousand-year reign of righteousness of Christ. Let's go through this text a little bit. Verse 10 talks about them taking from this group of men some silver and some gold or receiving from them some silver and some gold and fashioning it into a crown and placing it upon the head of Joshua the high priest. Now that action is a revelation. It's a revelation to us of something that should not be expected. It's a revelation to us of a priest sitting upon a throne in the nation of Israel. 
strictly forbidden according to the Old Testament law. In Israel, the priest and the king, separate offices, meant to be held by separate individuals. And the priest never wore a crown and never sat upon a throne, and the king never performed priestly functions. And yet here we have it where a crown is placed upon the head of Israel's high priest. The crown is placed on Joshua's head, not Zerubbabel's head. Remember, Zerubbabel was the governor. And so this action that we have is looking forward to a day when there will be an individual, one man, that will occupy in Israel both the offices of priest and the office of king. I wanted to quote this from you. This is a guy named David Barron. He wrote this in 1918, a long time ago. And speaking of this passage, he said this, this is one of the most remarkable and precious messianic prophecies, and there is no plainer prophetic utterance in the whole Old Testament as to the person of the promised Redeemer, the office he was to fulfill, and the mission he was to accomplish. And I quote that for you just to drive home the significance, and I think he says it well, of what is going on here. Joshua is to be crowned with the crown, but it wasn't his crown. It was, it was representative of the man, as it says in verse 12, whose name is the branch. Do you remember that phrase, that term? We used that, well, we didn't use it, Zechariah did, back in chapter 3. I think it's chapter 3, verse 8 there. And it speaks about the Lord bringing his servant, the branch. You may recall in our study of Zechariah chapter 3, I pointed out in many versions that entire word branch is capitalized. Capital B, capital R, capital A, and so on, through. And it's, uh, it's pointing to the Messiah, God's servant. And we spent time looking at it. You can go back and you can listen to chapter 3. That same term is used in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. And in every one of those instances, it's referring to God's holy Messiah. And so here in this passage where Joshua the high priest is being crowned with the crown, it's pointing to the branch. It's pointing to the Messiah. It's pointing to someone else. Verse 13 goes on. It says, and it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord. Remember, this book has been so much about the temple. And they're building this temple, and this thing stinks, and it's nothing compared to the glorious temple that was once there. And in almost every one of the visions that we've looked at, Zechariah is telling the people through the vision he received, he's telling the people, look past this one. This temple's here, and it is what it is. Look past it. There's a glorious one that is coming. He's talking about the nation, and he says, look at this nation. Anyone can come in here and defeat us. And he says to them, look past this nation right now. Look to the glorious one that is coming. He keeps pointing them to the millennium. And here now, in this sort of the wrapping up of the visions, we have this symbolic action where Joshua the high priest is going to also be crowned as king, if you will. And it's pointing past Joshua and his day to the branch, to the Messiah, to the Lord's servant in that particular day. And so it says, and it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. And it is he that will bear the royal honor and that will sit on the rule of his, th on his throne and rule. And there will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. One man holding both offices. No discrepancies between them because it's one man holding both offices. There will be peace between them both. It, what it is, is it's an acted out drama. It's an acted out drama of the day that a greater than Joshua will come. 
the son of David, the Messiah, and establish his place, build that temple, serve as king and priest. Now again, according to Old Testament law, no Jew was allowed to serve as king and priest. Except, you remember that fellow by the name of Melchizedek? You remember him? Abraham ran into Melchizedek uh, in the book of Genesis. And he interacted with him, and Abraham gave a portion of the tithe to this guy Melchizedek. In the book of Hebrews, it explains to us that that was uh, indicative of the fact that Melchizedek was greater even than Abraham. How could anybody be greater than Abraham? But indicative of the fact that he would give the tithe to this individual, then this individual was greater. Now, in the book of Hebrews, as it explains who this Melchizedek is, his name is mentioned four times in the Bible. He's here, he's there, he's here, that's it. And like, who is this guy? He just pops up out of nowhere. He's found in the book of Psalms, he's found in the book of Genesis, he's found here in the book of Hebrews. And there in the book of Hebrews, it tells us, uh, as we have this passage, it says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, he's a king, priest of the Most High God, he's a priest. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, correct? Everybody understand that? David was his father, David... Uh, great, 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 great grandfather. David was of the tribe of Judah. What family line did the priests come from? The tribe of Levi. Very good. I forgot for a minute. I was, I was nervous when I asked the question. There's a lot of names I was hoping you knew. So how could Jesus be our high priest if he wasn't from the priestly line? According to the order of Melchizedek. Read the book of Hebrews this week. Just spend some time slowly reading through it. You'll love it. It's such a wonderful book of our scripture. They're all good. But that, man, it's just so good. It's so teaching. And it's so rich. You'll love it. Do it. Spend some time with it. And just take your time with it because it just goes through who Jesus is and how he's greater than the angels and so on and so forth. And it, it, that's where it starts. And it just goes through. And by the time it gets to this place of the high priest, it anticipates objection. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus can't be high priest. He's not of the tribe of Levi. Ah, yes, but according to the order of Melchizedek. And that's how Jesus, in this action that is happening where Joshua, and isn't it interesting that the name Jesus, uh, the Hebrew pronunciation of it is Joshua or Yahshua, so I find that interesting. But nonetheless, this Joshua back here in the book of Zechariah, going through this process, being crowned with this, all looking forward to the day when the one, according to the order of Melchizedek, will serve as both priest and king. And so, yes, Zerubbabel is going to be the one. We learned this last week. He's going to be the one. He laid the foundation stone of the temple. He will lay the capstone of the temple. And he's assured in the previous vision that we saw last week, he's assured, you know what, this is going to happen in your day, Zerubbabel. You're discouraged now. You'll finish it. But that... This temple that Zerubbabel built, nothing compared to the temple that will be in that day when the Messiah himself will erect that temple. It says, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and will bear the royal throne. He is the one that will bring peace. So those words then, shall build the temple of the Lord, that speaks to us that there is going to be another and more glorious temple that will be constructed. I think if you would, and you want a detailed uh, reading of it, read Ezekiel chapter 40 through Ezekiel chapter 48. And there's a description of that millennial temple 
uh, and all that it will be comprised of in those places there. You can read that further if you'd like. Verse 15, it says, Now those who are far off shall come, and they will help to build the temple of the Lord. Those who are far off, that's a reference to the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles will be converted to the faith as well, be a part of this process. And you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this will come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. The restoration of the dispersed Israel, fulfillment of the messianic promise, all of those are put before the people in Zechariah's day as an encouragement to them to obey. This is God's ways, walk ye therein, as it says in, in the book of Isaiah. And those are encouragements that are really set before every one of us. These are God's ways, walk ye in, therein. This is the place of blessing. This is what you were created for. You remember when you were a little kid, I doubt you remember back, but maybe you've seen other little kids, and they have that little ball, and the ball has all the openings with the different shapes, and you, you got to find the little plus and put it in the plus one. And then there's that circle one. But if you bang hard enough, you can get the oval through there, at least in the Downs family. That's what we did. And you can get it in there if you work hard enough at it. I remember it, too. I just wanted to share that with you. No, I'm kidding. That reminds me. When you find the actual one that fits in there, it goes in there like butter. Because that's what it was designed for. That's what it was created for. The circle goes in the circle. The oval goes in the oval. You were created to know God and to walk in his ways. And when you live up to that, so to speak, it's like butter. It's sweet. It's smooth. You're humming along. And you're enjoying exactly what it is that God created you for. And that's God's desire for every one of us individually. But that's the desire he had for every created being. And in the millennial reign, they will begin to experience that. This speaks, I think this passage, this book so far that we've looked at, it speaks to that. And it sets it before us as an encouragement to each of us. I know this is trite, but it's not, that doesn't mean it's not true. We know how the story ends. Every one of us, you have a Bible, you can read it. We know how the story ends. I've read, I'm sure you have, read the last chapter of the book of the Bible. And so we know this story that is called history. We know how it comes to conclusion. And I'll just give you a couple of verses. This is from Revelation chapter 21. It says this, Now the city, the glorious city that came down from heaven, it has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Notice, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false any longer, but only those that have been written in the Lamb's book of life. When John the Baptist, it's in the beginning of the, our study of the Gospels, when John the Baptist saw Jesus... He was standing with some of his own disciples, actually. And he saw Jesus, and he, he pointed out to him, and he said, you see that guy there? He says, behold, that's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I'll ask everyone here as clearly as I can, have you had your sins 
taken away? Or do you still harbor them? Do you still carry them? Are you still trying to deal with them yourself as you drag them along? Have you had your sin taken away? That's what it means in that Revelation passage when it talks about uh, having your name written in the Lamb's book of life. That means your sins have been removed from you. And now you're written in his book. Have they been taken away? And do you know that for certain? Do you know it for sure? Can you? Yeah, you can, friends. Oh, I don't know. No, you can. You can know if your sins have been taken away. So if you have any doubt about that, I'd love to talk with you a little bit further in a more of a private setting. Now, for those of us that have had our sins taken away because of the faith that we have placed in the work of Jesus Christ and what he has done on his cross, those of us that had have, I think a passage like this is still very helpful for us. Because it doesn't just culminate like, well, I sure hope people get, become Christians. But it's a passage that allows us to sort of look internal. Because if we know that in our destination is heaven, and if we, if we know that in heaven nothing unclean will ever enter into God's glorious kingdom, as it says there, well then as children of heaven now, should we be playing around with sin? No. Now again, we're all going to sin. We're all going to have proclivities. We're all going to have tendencies. And we're going to be drawn in a certain direction and not give much thought and find, what am I doing? Find ourselves in a certain place. But when God puts his finger on an area, do we deal with it? You know, where it talks about confess your sins to God, that word confess ultimately just means to agree. And so when God puts his finger on an area, you agree with God. You say, you know what, God, you're right. That is an area that needs to go in my life. I need your strength to help me to put that area out of my life and to walk as you would have me to walk. And so in the epistles where it talks about putting on the new man, it also talks about putting off the old man. That there are things in our lives that need to go even as we replace them with new things now that we are in Christ. And so look, if you've been harboring, maybe God's been putting his finger on an area of your life this morning, more likely over the last couple of weeks or months or whatever, and God's just been, you know what, we got to talk about this. And you know what that is, and God's been dealing with it. I want to encourage you today, deal with it. Don't carry it back out here with you. Leave it here. Get rid of it. You're done with it. Confess it as such and walk in the freedom that is ours in Christ Jesus. There was a high price paid for that freedom, death of our, our Savior. So don't drag it around. You don't need to any longer. Amen, friends? Let's pray. Father, we, as Christians, those of us here that are in Christ, Lord, we've been gifted with the Holy Spirit, our teacher, in each one of our lives, ministering truth to us. And Lord, no doubt any one of us here, every one of us here that has been looking to you in one way or another, there are those areas that you're challenging us on. Just as uh, Zechariah here in this in these set of visions challenged the people of his day. And Lord, if we are going to be that vessel that can be put up on that, that stand to shine bright for others and to draw them, not to us, but to you, 
that almost certainly, Lord, there's areas that need to be rooted out and cleaned out, taken away and dumped in a far distant land. And so, Lord, by your grace, I pray you would do that. And, Lord, we love this about you, that even when you bring conviction, you don't bring condemnation. You don't drive us from you to hide from you. You draw us into the light. That the light might expose our deeds of darkness and we might get rid of them. And so, Lord, I do pray that you would bless each one of us here uh, listening today. That we would draw closer to you as a result of our time here this morning. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.